Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedrico and Daniel Coca. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. This is a bonus episode that follows our four-part series on blockchain, crypto, and tokenization. And on this episode, we are discussing the concept of DeFi, otherwise known as decentralized finance, including its significance in the global economy and the potential impacts that DeFi could have on real estate investment. To do this, we're joined by Renick Pally, founder and chief investment officer of Stratus Technologies. Renick explains how protocols built on Ethereum and other blockchains are creating an entirely new parallel financial ecosystem where investors can trade, lend, borrow, and execute smart contracts. He also offers advice to investors who are trying to determine which blockchains will have longevity, and he addresses some of the common concerns people have about these new technologies, including security issues, legal questions, and DeFi's long-term staying power. Renick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I have been looking forward to this conversation. We had a four-part cryptocurrency, blockchain, real estate blockchain series for the podcast. And then I really wanted to do this bonus with you and speak specifically about DeFi, which for investors, you know, obviously we're investing, we're in finance. And from my understanding of what I'm seeing out there, DeFi is one of the biggest sectors that I'm seeing interest in for investors and within the blockchain space. So really excited to have you on today and just wanted to start with, can you give us a few highlights about your background and your story? Yeah, so my educational background is in applied math and engineering. I got a master's in quantitative finance at MIT and started my career on Wall Street working at a $70 billion global equity fund called Sanders Capital. And Sanders Capital was founded by Lou Sanders, who used to be the CEO and chairman of Alliance Bernstein. And before that was kind of one of the founders of Sanford Bernstein, which is well known on Wall Street for the quality of the research that they do. And so I was really fortunate to learn how to invest working with Lou. There was only 10 investment professionals at the firm when I was there. And so one of the areas that I spent a lot of time looking at when I was at, at Sanders were tech companies and financials. And so as a global equity fund, we looked at not only U.S. banks, but global banks, especially in, at the time, Southeast Asia and the Asian markets, just because of the financial growth that was happening in that region. And this was in the, the mid to early teens, so 2013 to 2015. And it was through that work that I first discovered Ethereum, which is sort of the best known virtual machine blockchain 
today, that's where most of DeFi has been built on, although that's changing quickly. But when I first came up across Ethereum, researching basically what the potential risks were to owning some of these significant banks. We had many billions of dollars of exposure to various global banks and wanted to understand what were some of the competitive threats there. And so, you know, one of the things that was really interesting was, you know, you, you had this narrative in emerging markets that a lot of the population, a huge percentage of the population, a majority, in fact, at the time, didn't have bank accounts. And so a lot of the banks were kind of saying, hey, look at this growth opportunity that we have. We're going to convert all of these people to users. And I traveled to these countries and did my own research on the ground and concluded that they were more likely to, these people were more likely to leapfrog and use various technology applications and mobile phones for banking as opposed to a traditional bank account. And so it was through looking for what kind of solutions might exist for that, that I stumbled across Ethereum. And so it was from there that I said, you know, if this, if Ethereum becomes what I think it, it might be, you know, the idea of having this decentralized global computing machine that was Turing complete could have any application built on top of it in the same way that you'd have an application on your phone or a server or whatever. This could have some really significant implications for the world. I decided to leave Sanders and start my own firm, which is Stratos Technologies, to focus on investing in fintech and blockchain, Web3, et cetera. So that was the genesis of really focusing on this space. And that was in 2016. And since then, uh, we've been investing in fintech, blockchain, Web3. And I'm also a founding team member of a decentralized finance protocol built on Ethereum called Goldfinch Finance, which we can talk about in more detail. But that's the high level. And that's how I got to where I'm at now. Yeah, wow. So when I think back to like 2015, 2016, Ethereum launched in 2015, right? Correct. Right. Okay. So you got in very, very early, or I mean, just you, you became aware of it very, very early back then. Did you understand right away? It sounds like you did, but I really want to kind of dig into this a little bit. Like, how were you able to understand that early that it would be such a revolutionary technology? Like, what was it about the technology, about Ethereum, about what was going on through your research that helped you kind of like key in on this enough to start your own firm? Yeah. So basically the thing that existed before Ethereum was and is the Bitcoin blockchain, which was the white paper was released in 2009. And so Bitcoin had been gaining adoption, you know, developing traction, nothing like it is today, but up until 2014, 2015, it was somewhat well-known in like the tech side of the world as kind of this novelty. And it, it was based on a blockchain, which is just this version. It's a distributed ledger, meaning that you got a lot of computers around the world that are agreeing to some state of the ledger, i.e. who owns what Bitcoins. But that's really all it did. What Ethereum added to that in its own blockchain design was this concept of a smart contract. And the smart contract purported to be this thing where you could have two different counterparties basically 
pre-agree to some set of terms. You could think of it like the easiest example here is like a derivative contract, like an option where I agree to sell you Apple stock six months from now at $150 a share, a simple call option contract. And instead of us having to be intermediated by some third party like Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or whatever, you could put all of those terms into a smart contract and it would self-execute six months from now based on the terms that we agreed to today. And so I looked at that and thought, okay, they're pretty much everything in our world follows that same logic. Every existing business model to some degree follows that. If you can start to take some trusted intermediary out of the equation, lots of business models in the world will get disrupted. And so if you can make this thing work at scale, it's going to have really significant implications. So that was the general thinking. And so the first thought that I had when I looked at Ethereum was this can build a whole new financial ecosystem. Because if you look at traditional finance today, every single transaction you do goes through a trusted intermediary, whether it's a bank or an asset manager or a broker, you're going through someone else to get something done that if you actually didn't need a central point of trust, you wouldn't need that intermediary. And so you could basically rebuild the whole financial ecosystem and do it in a way where you didn't need these intermediaries. And you could also build it in software as opposed to it being defined by paper and ACH wire transfers and all of these archaic things that were built off of server infrastructure from the 70s and 80s, you could start fresh. And so that was basically my investment thesis, which actually ended up coming true. It has come true in a kind of spectacular way, which is really cool to see in this thing that people in the space called DeFi which is short for decentralized finance. But we started looking at the space and, and trying to figure out how to invest in it and build things in it before the, the term DeFi even existed. Right. Yeah, it's your approach is far more analytical than mine. I remember when I first got my an impression of DeFi, when I started to look into it, my very first impression was there's a new financial system being superimposed upon the existing one. And it's been fascinating. And I've only been really deeply, more deeply looking into it since the beginning of this year, even though I had owned, I owned some Bitcoin and some Ethereum from a long time ago. So it's, it's been fascinating to see it explode. And you, you kind of touched on this, which is it's not just Ethereum anymore. There are all these other blockchains, but I'm, I would love to touch on something that, you know, we, we chatted about in, in, in the pre-call is this, there's a lot of skepticism around, there's a lot of media and skepticism. People say all kinds of things. There's a lot of groupthink. Uh, there's a lot of random thoughts out there that this is a fad, that this is not here to stay, that people are like playing games, getting paid. There's just all kinds of noise out there, but you said, and I completely agree. And I think it's proving out that there's actually something being built in crypto and it's not just 
the speculation and the trading and the 100% gains this day and the 80% drawdowns the next. So can you speak to that a little bit? Cause you're so in it with the funds that, you know, you're looking at companies to invest in, you know, not swing trading, you're actually investing. So from your perspective, like what is being built? And then we'll, I definitely want to dive into the, the DeFi. Sure. I think you used an interesting word a minute ago, which is there's a new financial system being superimposed on the existing one. I would say it's actually a new financial ecosystem being built in parallel to the existing one, meaning that it exists completely on its own and actually doesn't require the traditional financial ecosystem at all. And I would say that's really what is unlocking so much of the potential here. Because if you try to go into the existing financial system and just create new components of it, you'd still be dealing with what is fundamentally an architecture that is out of date. And so I say that to answer your most recent question, which is what is actually being built? Well, when you look at what Ethereum is, you could think of Ethereum as we call it a layer one, which is... It's just a piece of infrastructure that is the backbone for handling all of this data and executing these smart contracts. But that's not the only layer. There's a layer on top of that, which is called the application layer. So think of it like you've got your Mac OS that runs your iOS, like your phone or your laptop. That's the layer one. That's the actual execution layer. That's what, where the computation happens. But then on top of that, you've got the application layer like Uber or Instagram or whatever, your mail app, iMessage, that all sits on top of the layer one. And so that is what people kind of call DeFi, but there's a lot more now than just DeFi. But anyway, that's what people interact with. That's what the layer ones exist to facilitate. And so... Right now, what we do in our funds is we invest in the tech teams that are building both the new blockchains, the new layer ones, the infrastructure, as well as the applications on top of it. And so you can actually look at these things just like you would look at a SaaS company that's publicly traded. They generate revenue. You know, They have tokens, which are kind of like shares. They have teams that develop them, update them. And so these are real value creating properties in the same way that a piece of real estate is, that a toll road is, that a, a share of stock is. It's just that you know the mainstream media and a lot of people's ability to understand this is somewhat limited to the headlines and you know what did Dogecoin do yesterday or, or what is the volatility of Bitcoin. And from my perspective, that's okay. It, it doesn't really bother me, that just means there's more edge for us. There's more alpha available. But the most sophisticated tech investors in the world are all very focused on doing things that are similar to us because they recognize that this is like another internet and we're basically investing in the new infrastructure of it. Yeah, it's quite a journey to look into it. And you know, I've tried to take some time to like really get into certain projects and it's very technical. It's very, very technical. And I so appreciate what it takes to understand and to make an investment in it, which is of course also a bet in which of these 
layer ones and, and even beyond like the infrastructure is going to be the one that will win overall. I mean, we have Ethereum, maybe you can talk about a couple of the other blockchains that have, that have really come up and are, you know, competitors to, or they'll, they'll be there alongside Ethereum and what that might mean for Let's say as an investor, how do we how do we best try to understand what's going to be a keeper? Like what is going to have the longevity? Because a lot of the stuff that was around years ago after like 2016, that's not around anymore. So what are some things that that people should be looking for and that you look for in terms of longevity and, and being winners in this space? Because there's hundreds, as, as far as I understand, literally hundreds of layer ones that are being developed. So how do we know who wins? Yeah. Well, I want to talk about speculation for yeah in a minute, but we can, let me answer this question first, because I think they go together. So there are many different layer ones, these computation layers. And the reason for that is Ethereum has a problem right now. And the problem with Ethereum is that the transaction fees, they're called gas fees, are very high. It costs between 150 to $200 to just do a simple transaction to you know, do a trade between two coins or to move money around in the crypto world right now. And the reason why those fees are so high is because the network is congested. And the reason why the network is congested is because there's so much demand for building things and using this technology that when it was originally developed in 2015, it didn't envision this much transaction throughput need. And so Ethereum is in the process of updating itself to use to have much higher transaction throughput and actually fundamentally changing its architecture to handle that. But in the meantime, a lot of other Ethereum-like virtual machines that are distributed have been built to take some of the transaction volume and to improve upon the original design. Because if you think about it, it's like Ethereum sounds very technical and it is, but in a lot of ways, its architecture is like the Model T. It's the first one. And so we are continuing to see many different developments of blockchain technology that move the ball down the field and make a development improvement in terms of the architecture of the chain and how consensus is formed and what the execution environment looks like. So there's a lot of elements to it that are very technically challenging. And what I would say in terms of investing in longevity is this is a space where you can't set it and forget it. If you want to set it and forget it, invest in Ethereum and Bitcoin, but don't try and do any of the other stuff because the space is moving so quickly that it can be really hard to identify what actually has staying power. What I would say though, is if you had to pick some things that had staying power that weren't Bitcoin and Ethereum, they would be some of the applications that are building built on top of Ethereum or some of the other L1s, like a, a popular one that has really increased the transaction throughput and lowered costs versus Ethereum is called Solana. These applications that are built on top of it that have some interaction with the real world and humans. And what I mean by that is, they're not just these speculative things that you say, okay, this is cool. It's going to be able to make money. It's going to attract some interest in the community here for the next couple months, but is only really a stepping stone to the next thing. 
those things are, are kind of trading opportunities that are really hard to see as being truly foundational pieces of infrastructure in this space. But the applications that actually interact with the real world, you end up building a moat by creating this interaction with real world assets or you know humans that are maybe not crypto centric as some of the other projects that helps create some staying power. And so I think Goldfinch, the project that I've involved with is a good example of that because it, it does something kind of novel, which is it helps to bring human judgment on chain at scale. And what I mean by that is historically, or you know, over the last six years that Ethereum has really existed, what smart contracts have proven that they're very good at is doing computational things, solving computational problems. You, you have this derivatives contract, you need to figure out you know, what the profit is in six months between the two parties. Well, that's very easy to do. You just take the price of the stock and you run it through the algorithm and outcomes the profit. But when it comes to something that's more of a judgment call, like who should I make a loan to, computers aren't very good at that. Even trying to use AI for that is not, no one's really quite figured out how to do that very well yet. And so what you are better off doing is trying to use human judgment. And so if you have some way of getting people around the world to use their judgment to try and help you make better decisions, and you can incentivize that judgment with discrete monetary payments, what you can basically do is create this coordination mechanism to leverage that existing knowledge to make really good decisions at scale for any, in Goldfinch's case, lending decision for any borrower in the world, which is a new idea. And that's something that is very distinctly enabled by blockchains because they can act as a coordinating mechanism for people. And that's, there's this concept of a DAO, which is a decentralized autonomous organization that are being built on top of blockchains now that do just that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the DAO. That's exactly what I was thinking. I said that, that I was thinking that sounds like, that sounds like a DAO. And, and that also is the bringing together, like you said, of the human element and, and then obviously using the tech for what the tech is used for. I was following the story about index.finance that somebody managed to work something out in the code that allowed, and this was like an 18 year old or 16 year old work something out in the code that he basically drained this whole account of about $16 million. And his defense is code is law. And he was saying I that basically he was able to find a flaw in the code or just the, the rules. And he used those to his advantage. And then everybody that had their money in that pool clearly lost it and he took it and he's defending himself. I don't know if you were following this case, but it that makes me think about this and it's going, you know, to in front of judges and, and a court, et cetera, which is humans and human judgment. So I just found it really interesting, this idea of code is law. So I would curious what you think about what you think about that. Yeah. So I think there are, there are two avenues of discussion there. One is, is code law. And mm -hmm. I think increasingly that seems to be the case. I mean, look at what's happened with Facebook now meta and what they're arguing and 
should they disclose the algorithm? Well, the algorithm that defines what is shown on an Instagram feed basically is something that has been proven to influence the outcome of elections, which then creates law. So from that perspective, I think it's certainly true that code is law these days. It's just the world that we live in. But I think in terms of you know, the security of these protocols, you can think of it like banks. You know, Bank robberies happened a lot more often 100 years ago than they do now. Why? There's a variety of security features we put in place and backstops like the FDIC. The industry is doing the same thing to help solve you know, the risks associated with hacking. And it's just like another is you know, commercial aircraft. They're incredibly safe. They were not as safe when they first came out, but we've done a really good job of regulating that and turning it into something that is very trustworthy. And so crypto is self-regulating. Every project that launches has an audit. So there's a, a group of companies that provide code audits to make sure that they're secure. Obviously, they're not 100%. Issues still come up, but they're really good. There's also a company actually... The founder of is an investor in our fund called Immunify, which basically creates bounties for hackers to go out and find exploits in code like the one you were just describing. But instead of them taking the money, they get paid. And so it's legal money. Instead of them having to go you know, steal the money, try and run off with it, disappear with it, whatever, they get paid fair and square and you know, they get to move on with their life. And so what's interesting about that is it's about a 10 to 20% of the amount that you would have stolen in a hack is usually enough for the hacker to just take the bounty instead. So if you would have stolen 10 million, they'll just take two and move on to the next one. Because the other thing about blockchain is that it's all open source. So if someone goes and steals the money, you know, how do they know that this 16-year-old is a guy who stole it? Well, it's transparent. You can go and see what wallet address went in, opened up the code, took the money out, and now where is the money? Well, you can actually trace back who the, to who that is. And so in some of the more famous hacks that have happened in crypto, for example, like Mt. Gox, the, the Bitcoin that was taken from Mt. Gox, and I think it was 2014, is all blacklisted. So the person some anonymous wallet somewhere in the world is holding that Bitcoin and people actually can see when it gets transferred, but no one will actually transact with that Bitcoin. None of the exchanges will accept it, whether they're centralized or not. It's just on a master blacklist. And so it's almost as if there was no incentive for that person to do the hack in the first place. And so that's another level of security that exists there. So you know, there certainly will continue to be high profile hacks and things that happen. But I think when you look at the total aggregate value of money that's floating around the space today, which is, you know, $170 billion and, you know, the actual value of this infrastructure and in aggregate is over $2 trillion. From that perspective, you know, these $10 million hacks here and there are pretty immaterial. Yeah. Wow. All I could think about was that that happened really fast like the market cap value of it, like the, the aggregate value that's floating around. And so much of it seems to be flowing into DeFi. So basically 
DeFi is, is everything that I've seen it spelled T-R-A-D, trade. I don't know if it's TradeFi or TradFi, but basically traditional finance has been shortened to kind of match like DeFi and then CeFi for centralized finance. I just wanted to touch on on that one thing really quickly, the centralization and the decentralization, because my understanding is that the only truly decentralized cryptocurrency is Bitcoin and that Ethereum is centralized and these others are centralized. Are there risks in that form of centralization or are they decentralized enough to serve their purpose so that there isn't one single point of failure? Yeah. So, um, I think the argument that Bitcoin is the only decentralized crypto blockchain is is probably uh, a, a bit of propaganda. There are many other blockchains that are very decentralized. You can also argue what is the definition of something being decentralized? Does it mean that you need to have at least 50, 51% of the network behaving in a in accordance with the objective of the blockchain or is it something else? So there's a lot of different ways. How many nodes are live supporting this network? You know, that's another way of looking at it. But I don't, to answer the question in a more practical way, I don't look at Ethereum or some of the other well-known layer ones and think, you know, this is not decentralized enough because it's centralized. There are significant risks. I think that they are sufficiently decentralized to, to function correctly. I think the reason why people care about decentralization in the first place is because if you look at a lot of every successful business in Web2 is basically leveraging the fact that they're centralized and that they have centralized data, which is actually your data that they control in a centralized way to leverage their business model and extract rents from other people. And they've become so powerful that the only real antidote to this problem is decentralized networking, which is what we're getting into now. And that's why all of the sophisticated technologists in the world are so focused on this Web3 decentralized space now. Because it, it's an inevitability that in a centralized software model, you'll end up having um, power accrue to a small number of you know, oligopolistic entities. And so decentralized networks are the solution to that problem. And that exists pretty much everywhere where trust is an inherent centralized component. Money is that as well. If you think about you know, the risks to holding US dollars, you know, why is real estate something that people are interested in owning instead, it's because you're implicitly trusting the Fed and the, and the US government to not do dumb things with the purchasing power of the dollar. But the incentives really aren't set up in a way where the powers that be are trying to maximize the long-term purchasing power of the dollar. They're trying to stay in power. They want to be reelected. And so there's an inherent incentive misalignment there that leads to basically the debasement of the dollar. It's been happening. It will continue to happen. And, you know, so people, I think, intuitively understand the value of decentralized things. It's just that it's never been practical until today, until, you know, blockchain technologies were developed. And 
It's interesting to note that the Bitcoin white paper, which is the first real practical use case of a blockchain in this decentralized, you know, distributed ledger technology, was released right around, you know, the, the bottom of the financial crisis where the major U.S. banks were failing as basically a way to say, look, there's a better way of doing this. You don't need to have this system where there's so much trust in a couple of centralized parties that if they fail, brings down the rest of the system. The blockchain, the blockchain technologies are the opposite of that. You can have a lot of the nodes fail or even act maliciously and still have the system work. Yeah, and I remember asking you this question when, when we first met months ago. And I know it was like, to me, I'm like, I'm going to ask the silliest question, but I'm going to ask it because I didn't understand enough about it. But basically it was like, what happens if the lights go out? Like in the sense that if it's a digital currency, and I, I remember asking specifically, this was a Bitcoin related, but you know, what happens if the power grid goes out and you answered it. I wonder if you would answer it again. Cause I know after I'm not the only person that thinks that when it comes to, if our whole financial system is digital, it's powered by electricity. And I know that I can hand my cash over to somebody and they understand the value of that piece of paper, but how do I, what happens if it, like, can I lose everything, I guess, in that very simple analogy of like, what happens if, if the lights go out and what would it take for that to be basically gone? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think, you know, to go back to what I was just saying about Bitcoin as an example, you'd have to have basically 80%. I mean, now a lot more than that, actually, probably 98% of the Bitcoin nodes that are running around the world lose power and to have the network stop functioning. But even if they lost, so you'd have to basically have a global loss of power for a sustained period, assuming that none of these nodes were running generators which or had, had their own energy grids, which by the way, a lot of them do, especially in the US now, a lot of the Chinese miners are moving into the US and they have their own wind farms, solar farms that run exclusively their own Bitcoin mining infrastructure. So assuming that all somehow was destroyed or, or damaged, the network would stop working, but it doesn't mean that the, the Bitcoin would be lost. It just means that you couldn't transact them. But I would say, you know, do you have your entire net worth in cash? Are you relying on, you know, paper instruments to define what assets you own and, and to use those? You know, do you have that? Most people don't. I think that, you know, the assumption that we will go into a dark age without electricity is probably not a uh, realistic scenario unless, you know, we have much bigger problems. So I don't look at that as being a significant risk. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's important to, to, to like, I think about some of those things that, that might be really basic as I'm like watching this, the complexity basically of a whole, you know, like we talked about a parallel financial system. I mean, you can lend, you can trade, there's derivatives, there's synthetics, there's, you know, we've been talking about, we've talked a little bit about tokenization and, and real estate on with some of our other guests. And that was another thing that I wanted to, to talk to you about was a little bit NFTs, not the art, not the, not the JPEGs, but what I've seen is that you know, there's NFTs that have utility and they seem to also be emerging in the DeFi space. So I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about DeFi for a second. So 
what is DeFi really? DeFi is basically a set of protocols that enable financial primitives. And those financial primitives are the things that you know, we think of as being the core functionalities of a financial system. So that's, as you said, trading, lending, borrowing, derivatives, et cetera. And so when you think about what you need to enable to have a fi functioning financial ecosystem, it's these things. And so those have been built to sit on top of Ethereum and all of the other chains to enable you to trade, lend, borrow, write options, contracts, et cetera, on, on tokens. Instead of shares of stock or whatever, it's, it's a token, which can have a lot more functionality, this token, than just a share or a, a piece of stock or whatever. And so that's where things start to get really interesting because anything can be a token. And so when you think about what's actually happening in, in Web3 and crypto, one of the big narratives is that everything is being financialized. So if you look at an NFT and you think it's so silly how much these things are, some of these things are worth and how much the prices move, you, it does seem silly in the context of traditional art or things that didn't have a value put on them. But now when you put a value on something and it becomes tradable and liquid around the world and has more utility than just being a piece of art, then it stops to become silly that this thing could be worth $5,000 or $10,000. And then you start to look at it in a different light. And so, for example, one of the things that's really popular right now, and this is only a couple months old, which is amazing that how quickly the space is moving, is if I buy this NFT, when I hold this NFT in my wallet, it gives me access to specific message boards or clubs where I can interact with other people that are holding similar NFTs. But unless you have the NFT, you can't enter. And so that's like the most simplistic form of this idea of an NFT having utility. But it's expanding rapidly. And so when you think about things like when you play video games and you buy things in the game, today, those things only exist inside that game. But where gaming is going, and this is happening right now, is when you buy something in a game, you get an NFT that represents that object. Which means if you go from playing World of Warcraft and then you go into Fortnite, you could actually burn skin from game A to game B or an object from game A to game B. It's all fungible across these worlds. And so then you start to create objects that exist in the digital world that feel just like something that you'd have in the real world where you can take it from your house to your car, to your office, to wherever. And so these things can then be a lot more valuable. And so a good example of where NFTs are going also is tokenizing real estate. So one of the issues with real estate, or some people would call it a feature, is that it's not volatile. It's not tradable. It's not volatile because it's not tradable. There's no liquid price. It has to be, you have to engage a broker and go out and put the asset on the market and try and find, make a market in that asset. But imagine if you could own individual pieces of real estate as tokens, what would happen there? And so a lot of people have interest in that. We've looked at quite a few companies that are going out and tokenizing real estate and it will eventually happen. There's no doubt in my mind and cars will be tokenized and you know, every physical object that exists in the physical world will be tokenized. It may not happen next year, but 
what's so interesting about these DeFi primitives is they work for any token. So it could be a token that represents a share of stock. It could be a token that represents a piece of art. It could be a token that represents a membership to a club. It could be a token that represents uh, a commercial building or a piece of a commercial building or a lease in a commercial building. And you can go and trade all of these things with the same amount of liquidity that you have with, you know, think about the New York Stock Exchange or something like that. So that's the high level. I would say, why are some of these things so valuable? You kind of have to look at the crypto world as its own capital sort of microcosm in the sense that money is like air in crypto. And the reason why money is like air is because there's so much of it. And the reason why there's so much of it is because so much value has been created so quickly. Because when you think about what it takes to build lending protocol or one of these layer ones like Ethereum, it's a handful of engineers and maybe six months. And so what that means is that unlike a traditional tech company or something even more old world, like a traditional um, industrial company, that requires tons of capital and time, and they're just very low relative returns on capital. In crypto, you can build something that can be worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and it, be, it becomes liquid within a few months, which means you can trade it and realize that value with just a handful of people with a you know, couple million dollar budget. Now, the, the counter argument to that is, okay, that's true, and you can create these things that are very valuable, but if it's so easy to build them, then there's no moat. You know, it's not like owning a piece of real estate on Maine and Maine where, you know, no one's going to come and take that, which is true. But that's why I said earlier, some of the best companies and things that we really invest in are the ones that have that staying power. Because when you combine those two things, you get pretty spectacular financial results. And so I think to talk about real estate specifically and what we think is going to happen there, the first thing that really needs to happen is there needs to be a lending market against real estate NFTs. And actually, I just saw a project a couple of days ago that has created real estate NFTs that are loans against uh, residential properties. So that's really interesting. We'll see where that goes. But if you think about it, like whenever there's a transaction in real estate, it's being driven by the lender. You have to have senior financing to make any transaction happen. And so until the forms of senior finance are willing to provide capital against a tokenized piece of real estate, it's going to be very hard to want to drive the industry onto the blockchain, if that makes sense. But because I said earlier, this is a parallel financial ecosystem, it's not being built on top of the existing one, there actually are lending protocols like Goldfinch that will have low enough cost of capital to compete with traditional agency lenders. And so in that scenario, when that happens, someone will actually have the optionality. They say you want to go buy some commercial building. You can either go to Fannie and Freddie and get financing, or you could go and buy, you, you could go get the same type of financing with, at competitive rates directly on a DeFi-based lending protocol. And then you'll have the choice to tokenize the, the asset and get your financing directly from the crypto markets. Yeah, I have at least 20 more questions that I want to ask you. This is so interesting, but I but I want to be like respectful of your time. I mean, this has been so fascinating and you touched on so many important things, especially the speed at which things are are really happening and and staying on top of it. 
is a full-time job. Clearly it's what, it's what you do is what you and your team do so well. I just wanted to thank you for, for taking some time for, for coming on, for telling us about everything. I mean, this, the, the DeFi space is just, it's just growing so much. I mean, you can even pool your NFTs and borrow against your NFTs. So the NFTs themselves are becoming part of DeFi. It's so very, very interesting. And, and there's, the, the growth. I'm glad that I don't do this for a living because, and, and that you do because <laughs> you're really good at it. So all of that to say, just, just thank you. It's been fascinating, really informative. And, and, you know, I know the funds are doing, are doing really well. And, you know, if people want to get in touch with you, we'll put a, we'll put a link there. So just wanted to express my, my gratitude for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I hope it was enjoyable. Yes, I, I know we're going to get a lot, a lot of questions that are our, our crypto kind of DeFi, like blockchain series that we've been doing on the podcast has, has been really popular and, and it shows, I mean, our investors are curious, people are curious. I mean, there's money isn't just in the hands of centralized governments anymore, I think would be my best way of putting it. And there are opportunities everywhere, but discerning those opportunities, underwriting them, putting your hard-earned money at risk, it takes a lot. And so I think it's important for people to understand what this is from the perspective of those who transact in it on a daily basis. Yeah, I would say this is one of those asset classes where the fees are worth paying because the outcomes for good investments can be so significant that the fees don't even matter. But it's so hard to stay on top of, even as someone who spends all of my time on it. There's so much going on because everything is open source and permissionless. People can just build on top of the last thing that got built last week. And so the pace of replication and improvement is pretty staggering. It, it certainly didn't exist this way in the, the first iteration of the internet. So it's, it's pretty exciting, but it's a lot to stay on top of. So if you have more questions, you know, to reach where to reach me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Renick. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks. thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode, and especially we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.